And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I am Andy Bitter, your Virginia Tech beat writer, joined as usual during the basketball season by Brendan Marks, our UNC and Duke basketball writer. We are about halfway through ACC play. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to calculate that with all the games that have been postponed, but I see a lot of teams have played about eight or nine games in there, so we're going to call that the halfway mark of the ACC schedule. Uh, interesting so far, some very interesting results this week, a uh, couple upsets in there, uh, to kind of muddle the standings a little bit. I think this could be a very interesting finish. Uh, let's bring Brendan in right now and talk about it. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm, I am doing great, Andy. I, uh, luckily North Carolina did not get the snow that apparently you saw in Virginia and I treated myself to a new pair of sweatpants this week. So I am, I am as good as I could possibly be better than a couple of teams atop the ACC right now. Wow, treat yourself. New sweatpants. That is a big purchase. We got four to five inches of snow here in the New River Valley, so I got to go outside and go sliding with my daughter. She loved it. Uh, she shoveled the driveway a little bit, still getting the concept of that. She would just pick snow up of one part and put it on another part of the driveway, so we got to uh, teach her about that stuff. But that was fun. I also, this weekend, attended a basketball game. Woohoo! <laughs> Me, the football writer. Went to a basketball game. I was covering it. Uh, I was going for the send-off for Doug Dowdy, former colleague of mine at the Roanoke Times after a 47-year career uh, uh, covering, <laughs> covering things for the Roanoke Times. He's covered, he's covered UVA longer than I have been alive. So that's how long I was there uh, going to send off the legend there. But I figured I'd stay. Virginia Tech was playing Virginia, and lo and behold, the, Caval- or the, the Hokies go out there and beat the Cavaliers 65-51. Uh, to 51. Outscoring them 44 to 24 in the second half, 20, 21 to 4 to finish the game. This snaps a 15 game winning streak in the ACC for UVA. It didn't really feel like that because it's half at the end of last season and half to start this season, but that's a pretty big win for these Hokies, and they did it with Tyrese Radford being suspended. Uh, shortly after we recorded last week, the news comes out that Tyrese Radford was suspended for a DWI and carrying a concealed weapon. He's one of their best players. Uh, I have to admit, going into this week, I had kind of low expectations for the Hokies. I thought this was going to be Virginia Tech coming back to earth, and then they go out. They play really well against Notre Dame, which is Notre Dame. They're not very good, but then they beat Virginia at home in pretty convincing fashion. Uh, How impressive was this uh, by Virginia Tech? I, I was equally surprised, Andy, because I was sort of expecting, you know, you think about Virginia and you think about the consistency over the last, you know, 15 ACC games, as you mentioned, 
you know, the tear that the Cavaliers were on at the end of last year into this year, it's pretty shocking that they were able to make it this long without sort of uh, running into some sort of buzzsaw or bad shooting night, which which I think a lot of it was. Um, but at the same time, give give a lot of credit to the Hokies. I mean, I think this win sort of validates some of those earlier season performances they'd had against, you know, you, you look at the Villanova win, you look at Duke, some of those uh, victories where you're not sure, okay, is this a fluke? Is this legit? It's legit now. And, and I think that, um, you know, Kevi Aluma had, obviously the best game of his his young Hokies career I think he had what 29 points 10 of 15 shooting 10 boards I mean um, he looks like an all ACC kind of guy and you mentioned doing it without Tyrese Radford that to me was the most convincing and interesting part about this win because that shows that already it's it's only year two under Mike Young and the ability of this team to sort of adapt and improvise on the fly um, Hunter Couture has really stepped up the last two games 28 points combined the defense Virginia Tech has consistently when they get offensive outbursts like this from a guy like Kevin Aluma, um, I, I think the Hokies are legit contenders in the ACC. You know, we had talked about Virginia and Florida State separating themselves. I, I think with this sort of win, the Hokies are sort of forcing themselves into that conversation. Yeah, it was interesting. The UVA, you think the pack line defense is tough to score on them inside, and they had no answer for Aluma. I mean, they had all sorts of guys attempting to guard him, and they just really could not stop him at all. Uh, very impressive game there. You mentioned the other guys stepping up. Couture, uh, second half, played especially well. Uh, he had a big dunk that didn't count. It was a shot clock violation, but it was like a, a dunk over two guys. It's that, like, you know what? Take it. Just <laughs> whatever. It doesn't matter. The dunk itself was worth it. Uh, yeah, very interesting there. I don't know if they're going to get Radford back this year. Uh, you know, I kind of look at the timeline of this thing. He's got a February 9th arraignment or court appearance there. Uh you know, for the two charges, uh, I, I just find that tough that they could disentangle that whole thing legally and, and he could come back uh, in a short amount of time. So they're going to have to cope without him, I think, or at least be prepared to cope without him. But uh, Virginia Tech right now, 13-3, and 7-2 in the ACC, best start in ACC history. They are 4-0 and versus AP top 25 teams. Nobody else in the ACC has more than three wins. Georgia Tech, the other one, 3-2. and two. Um, they have beaten number three Villanova, number eight UVA this year. Uh, I, I guess I can spoil this right now because I was going to ask you later in the show uh, for your uh, your awards. Uh, we're at the halfway point of the season, so let's talk awards. The coach of the year is Mike Young, right? I mean, there's no other choice in the ACC right now. I, I think that Mike Young should be deserving of a handful of national coach of the year votes. And, and actually, uh, when you're talking about j- just it's year two, you know, it's year two, and, and not that Virginia Tech was bad last year, but because they were competitive and they were scrappy, and I think you saw um, you saw glimpses of what Mike Wong, what Mike Young wanted to do with this team. But then they lose Landers Nolly, and you're sort of wondering, okay, what is this all going to look like this year? And so for, for Keve Luma to come in and have the impact he's had is incredible, and, and the fact that we're probably going to have two transfers on the all-ACC first team is, is something that I find hysterical um, with all the like elite one-and-done recruits that, that come to the conference. But it, it's just really a testament, I think, to the culture that he's instilled there so quickly. Um, you know, it's not just the system. It's not just the defense. It's not just the, the marquee wins. It is the fact that I think already the, the Hokies feel like they are in every game they play. 
And that's a massive, massive difference from last year. And it's an even greater difference, I think, from two years ago. So um, it's been a great reworking on the fly. I, I agree. I would vote Mike Young right now as, as ACC Coach of the Year. Um, and in our larger, you know, the Athletic College Basketball Awards poll, um, I think if he doesn't get a couple of votes, then, then we should go back and uh, count the ballots all over again. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that he's getting some National Coach of the Year award buzz since he won it a couple years ago for one of the selectors while at Wofford when they ran the table uh, in that conference and, and did pretty well, got to the tournament. I think they lost to Kentucky that year, uh, but had a, a really great game, game that was. That. that was a great game. Uh, so we should not be surprised that Mike Young can coach him up. Uh, and he's certainly doing it here. Interesting stretch coming up for the Hokies. They play at Pitt and at Miami this week. I think, you know, you and I have talked. We're really curious to see how they handle a team that has a, a real low post presence. And can, the big guys, they play at Pitt this week. Champagny, obviously going to be a tremendous challenge for them uh, in the post. Uh, they play versus Louisville after those two. Then at UNC, at Florida State. I think that's really where you get. Uh, we'll figure out exactly what this team is, or how whether they can compete. Uh, you know, all the time against those teams in the top of the conference, especially the ones that have the real big guys, because that, that's what we haven't really seen yet. Right, exactly. So I think you know you, you're talking about you know Miami doesn't necessarily have what I'd call a, a true post presence. Um, you know, Louisville still without Malik Williams. Uh, Pittsburgh, Champagny's a monster. You know, he's he's the ACC Player of the Year right now, but is he? You know he's not a, he's not a legit center who's someone that they, you can just park in the center of the paint and let him operate. It, those UNC and Florida State games to me are the ones where we're going to learn about the viability of this team. And and I think I will say this to Virginia Tech's credit, the way that their success has come this season, offensively, defensively, um, you know they're very three happy. They've got a lot of quick twitch perimeter guys. Aluma's, uh, you know, we we've talked about this before. He is the rebounding threat, especially that's magnified now that Radford's gone. Um, I think that Virginia Tech's style lends itself more favorably to NCAA tournament play necessarily than just to running the table in the ACC. Um, when you look at some of the matchups, some of the teams in the ACC have uh, atop the conference, especially, you know, you're talking about Virginia and I know they just beat them, but, but doing that again against Sam Hauser and Jay Huff, you know, you're not going to get those two guys. They were horrible. I mean, and Kihei Clark had an awful game, probably his worst game of the year. He was four thirteen overall, just, just really inefficient. Um, but I think Virginia Tech is, is set up more so to have success in the NCAA tournament as compared to the ACC tournament when some of these specific matchups are going to be really challenging for them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. What do we make of UVA at this point? I mean, they played with fire in a win against Georgia Tech. Uh, had a win in between there and then they, they lose to Virginia Tech. I don't want to say uh, you're worried about a team that's 7-1 and and still atop the conference. Uh, but that's all the only game I've seen live, so I'm kind of drawing some conclusions from that. UVA did not play well. Even though they were up early, they were making three fadeaway threes as the shot clock was, was winding down. They had three or four of those. I mean, that, that was kind of uh, you know a false lead that they had at halftime there. Uh, any reason for concern with the way they've played lately, or is this team that's just, you know, sometimes you go through these stretches and they're still a really good team? Yeah, I, I you know, I'm not going to jump off the Virginia bandwagon or anything, but I think this sort of shows you one of the vulnerabilities of this Virginia team, you know? So the, the pack line defense is going to be there. We know that Tony Bennett's always going to have this team with a, a top 15, top 20 defensive efficiency rating. Um, but offensively, uh, still, even with two guys in Hauser and Jay Huff who are, you know, in the running for some conference awards, even with those two, the Cavaliers are still prone to some bouts of offensive inefficiency. I, I think, you know, you would know better, Andy, but I think there was a, a stretch in the second half of that game where the Cavaliers didn't score for like six or seven minutes at a time. Yeah, um, like seven and a half minutes or something like that. Right, exactly. So any team any team that is capable of going into that sort of offensive lull, it worries you. Um, but again, with, with the high-end talent they have, with Huff, you know, Kihei Clark's not going to play that poorly every single game. Um, Hauser's going to play better than he played. He's going to knock down a couple more shots. I, I think it was more of an energy thing. I think, you know, you wouldn't have expect. I, I think that game meant much more to the Hokies than it did to the Cavaliers. I think you could si- kind of see that, especially in the second half. Like, the effort levels and, and the intensity were just on completely different planes. So, no, I'm not worried about Virginia. I Again, you know, Tony Bennett's an incre- incredible coach, and they've got two studs that are sort of leading the way for them. Um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of teams that force Hauser and Huff into into that long of a run of inefficiency like, like Virginia Tech did. Let's turn to Duke. We uh, maybe danced on Duke's graves a little bit too early last week. Uh, I think everybody kind of does that. They go, is this it? Is this the end for Duke? You always want to be on the front end of that. I remember when Alabama football a couple years ago lost to Ole Miss. And everybody's like, it's the end of the Alabama dynasty. And they've won like three national titles since then or something like that. Duke has shown some life. The Blue Devils beat Georgia Tech 75-68. They beat Clemson 79-53. Clemson is a team that you doomed to failure a couple weeks ago by declaring them the best team of the, the ACC. They've lost four or five since then, all by 18 points or more, I think. 16 points or more. Uh, but that's not that's beside the point. Duke, is Duke back? Are, are we giving them the Miami football treatment? Duke is back. 
or or are they just in a little bit better position than they were last week? Yeah, we we are not going to make any more presumptive statements on this podcast, Andy, because we are not going to throw ourselves and our necks back on the line like we did with Clemson. <laughs> I'm never going to let you live that Clemson prediction down. I don't think Brad Brownell will either. So, um, but no, I you know I think clearly Duke is playing better than it was. But but to say that Duke is back after these last two wins, I think you know just just like any um, prognosticator sort of writing the Blue Devils off. It's a little too early to say, oh my God, they're back. Actually, that was the first line of my story this week. Um, this is not a Duke is back piece because they're not there yet. You know, uh, I think when we're talking about Clemson, this is a team that it's in a tailspin. You know, Clemson has lost four straight games. I think the average margin of defeat was like, you know, 23 and a half points. Um, and Louisville should be truly ashamed that that Clemson was able to sneak in a win in this horrendous four or five game losing streak. I mean, that is that's a really that's not a good good uh, look for Louisville. But at the same time for Duke, why are they playing better? To me, I, I look at two major things. Number one, Jalen Johnson is back and we have talked about him previously on the podcast um, when he was out with a foot injury. That was damaging for Duke in two different ways. Number one, you're without one of your best players. Uh, you know, he's a six foot nine, 225 pound wrecking ball. You know, he's a one man demolition crew. In transition, there just are not players at the college level capable of stopping him. At the second time, having Jalen Johnson back doesn't just mean that Duke has one of its best players on the floor. It means that there's finally some level of roster continuity, which there wasn't. Because at the start of the year, Duke tried to run its offense with Jalen. Then he goes out and you have to adjust to life without him. Then he comes back and you have to readjust to life with him while other guys have been developing in the meantime. So I think that has been as damaging to Duke as anything. And now that you're seeing these guys have a little bit of time together, the flow is much better. The rhythm's much better. He and Matthew Herter playing off each other much better. Um, again, these are against teams that I don't think anyone is expecting to, to really challenge for, I mean, Georgia Tech's a fine team. Clemson's a fine team, but, um, I would like to see Duke do this consistently and to do it against a Virginia, against a North Carolina on Saturday. Um, at that point, I think we'll know a little bit more about is Duke back, so to speak. Jalen Johnson, this was his line against Clemson. Nine points, eight rebounds, five assists, two steals, and one monster dunk on P.J. Hall. Uh, that was one of the better ones in recent memory uh, that, that I can think of. That's disappointing that there was nobody in the arena that could have reacted to that one. But that, that one's up there, isn't it? Oh, PJ, PJ Hall, I think, probably needs to go in the witness protection program. Um, I mean, that was it was embarrassing. Like, I, And I saw a couple of people on social media like applaud him for, for trying to jump. Don't do that, man. Just get out of the way. Make a smart business decision. Don't, don't put yourself on that sort of uh, humiliation. <laughs> But he tried at least. You got to give him credit for that. Get out of the he'd way. Rather, you, <laughs> you'd rather the guys just not even try and, and save their uh, social media status there. Andy, as someone who uh, played pickup at North Carolina with the likes of Marcus Page and Bryce Johnson, I have I have seen people be dunked on. I've seen how how uh, humiliating it is. Uh, it doesn't matter in what format. You see a guy like Jalen Johnson coming down the lane, take a step to the side and, and hold on to your pride. <laughs> Yeah, that's a smart decision. I, I want to ask you about Duke in sort of a larger picture. I know you're working on on some story that, you know, maybe you have to rework a little bit based on how the team is playing right now. 
what has been the issue for this team? I mean, is it just a young team coming around this year? Is it something larger with this program in, in recent years and, and kind of the direction they've gone with recruiting and going after the big guys? Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, a combination of those things. Number one, it is the youth. And we talk about Duke every year is bringing in all these one and dones. But, but this class especially, you know, Duke only had four players return from last season. And none of them were, you know, every single game starters. The, the most consistent contributors were Matthew Hurt, who has blossomed into an all-ACC guy, and Wendell Moore, who has not. Um, But beyond them, Duke brings in six freshmen, and that's the largest class that Coach K has had since the 2017 group headlined by Marvin Bagley. That class, if people remember, also had some problems clicking. You know, Duke ended up going to zone for most of the second half of that season because that group just could never figure out how to play man-to-man defense together. Um, So you're talking about extreme youth. Duke's average experience is 343rd nationally right now. Out of 347 teams maybe that are playing, um, Duke's like the the eighth least experienced team in all of college basketball. Um, So I think you really did see the the lack of an exhibition, the lack of closed-door scrimmages, the lack of a true non-conference slate. That really hurt this team because they needed that time to work through some of the kinks and, and more specifically to figure out what sort of offense is best. And now what you're seeing is, you know, now that Duke has played some of the fewest games of any ACC team, now as their numbers are creeping back up there in terms of games played, their production is getting there too because guys are learning, okay, I need to make some of these extra passes. Jalen Johnson, he's a physical freak, but he's also Duke's best passer. So him getting, you know, five, six, seven, eight assists a game, that's not atypical. That needs to be the standard. Um, Jordan Goldwire didn't score in the first half, I believe, uh, of the Clemson game. But he had four or five assists. You know, he was making the hockey assist without even looking and potentially trying to see if he was going to shoot the ball. So it's a more selfless team. There's better ball movement. Jalen Johnson being back helps. But really, this is a team that needed time to work out the kinks. I'm still not sure that the high-end talent is there. You know, again, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Georgia Tech has been up and down. Clemson has been really down lately. Um, But it's hard not to be encouraged by the growth you've seen from the young players on Duke's roster. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think everybody's like, oh, Duke is so bad this year. And yet in the back of your mind, you're like, man, I hope they don't put it together because that's going to be a tough team. That's going to be a tough out by the end of the year Uh, this week at Miami. And then the big game on Saturday versus UNC, Uh, you know, the Tar Heels are a team that's been putting things together lately too. Uh, kind of break that matchup down. How interesting of a game could this be? I I feel like this game hasn't gotten a ton of buzz, which is, I'm very fitting for a COVID-19 college basketball season. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I think this has the potential to be a really good game. You know, it's interesting because strengths do not align. You know, UNC's strength is clearly in the front court with Garrison Brooks and Armando Baycott and, and the army of bigs that Roy Williams has. Um, Duke does not really have a, a legitimate, consistent interior presence. You know, Mark Williams, uh, the seven-foot freshman, played his best two games, Duke's last two contests. And so I think that is not a coincidence that Duke is trying to get its big men involved more before this meeting with North Carolina. At the same time, um, I don't think that North Carolina really has anyone who matches up well with Matthew Hurt or with Jalen Johnson, you know, defensively. I don't know that Garrison Brooks is someone who's going to be able to defend Hurt on the perimeter. I'm not sure that um, Leaky Black, who's probably going to get most of the looks on Jalen Johnson, I don't know if that's a good matchup for Leaky. So... I think this has the potential to be a more high-scoring affair than we think. Um, 
But really, you know, when we're talking about this game, the only thing that I can think of is this is going to be played in Cameron Indoor with no fans. And that's uh, that's going to be a really strange sight to witness, Andy. What's the best Duke-UNC game you can remember that you've witnessed on, on TV or in person? A- Andy, are you going through my stories on Smartsheets? Because... I'm not. <laughs> no, that was, that was just... I just thought of that right now. Because you are you're in my bag. Um, I, I think the best one I witnessed would have been the ACC tournament semifinal from two seasons ago when you had, all at the same time on the floor, six different first-round picks. You had, uh, for Duke, the Zion, R.J. Barrett, Cam Reddish team. And for UNC, you had the Kobe White, Cam Johnson, Nasir Little team. Um, I think that was that was the first Duke-UNC game that year, and the only one that Zion Williamson really got to play in. I think it was a one-point Duke win, maybe two points, um, in Charlotte. Duke goes on to win, I believe, the ACC tournament regular tournament title um but that game was electric you had so much high-end talent it was back and forth blow for low seeing zion actually get to play against unc with there was a chance we weren't going to get to see that so um i absolutely love that game but again you know i also saw wendell moore and trey jones hit buzzer beaters last year so this this rivalry never fails i'm trying to think of the game uh this is a long time ago when they had anton jameson vince carter uh i think it was a game in cameron uh, pretty good p- d- d- opponents that they were going up against. I can't remember the exact year that was, but that one sort of stands out my memory of just having so much star power uh, in that game and, and so many players in that. So uh, if you can remember whatever that was, that was a great year. Whatever Back that the, game was. Those, those early nineties games were good. You know, even, even the one year that Duke was really bad, the 94, 95 season when Kay was out with the back surgery. I mean, even in that year, uh, Capel, you know, Mr. Current Head Pit Coach, you know, hits a half-court buzzer beater to force overtime. Right. So, so like, this, this, even when the teams are bad, these games are good, which is why I think we all love it so much. Yeah, yeah definitely looking forward to that game coming up this weekend. I want to hit on the other big upset uh, last week. I guess it was a big upset. I would say so. Moderate upset, the I'd way these teams have been playing lately. Georgia Tech beating Florida State. Uh, Georgia Tech had lost two straight. They blew their chance at UVA. They were hammered by Duke. And then they go out and they respond with a 76-65 win against Florida State. Uh, snapped a five-game winning streak for, for the Seminoles. They'd won all those games by double digits. Uh, Georgia Tech's big three, Jose Alvarado, Michael DeVoe, Moses Wright, combined for 63 points in that game. Uh, we sort of hit on the Yellow Jackets last week, but this is an impressive win. This is a, a nice resume builder that they had. It absolutely is. And it's it's funny enough that you mentioned the big three of Alvarado and Wright and DeVoe because most of this year it's been a big two. It's just been Wright and Alvarado. And, and when you see the production from Michael DeVoe, what do you have, 19 points? Um when you see him finally contributing, this is this is how good Georgia Tech can be. You know, this is the reason why we're talking about Georgia Tech as a potential tournament team. Um, it's because of the play of these three. The, the trick has just been getting them all on the same page in the same game. But no, certainly I think this is um, this is a win that it helps Georgia Tech, but I also don't think it tanks anything for Florida State. Um, you know, this is a Florida State team that is good, but it's not quite as good as last year. Um 20 turnovers for Florida State, very sloppy game, only shot 21.5% from three. Um, those numbers are not going to keep up. MJ Walker fouled out like halfway through the second half. Um, Florida State is a team that is very good, and with their size and length and athleticism, they're going to give a lot of teams problems. But at the same time, I don't think they have a tremendously high margin for error. You know, when they have the turnovers like this, when they have the poor shooting like this, um, so much of their offense is predicated on those big athletic guards 
guards if you want to call you know scotty barnes is a, a technically a guard but he's not um so much of their offense is predicated on those guys getting downhill going to the basket and then kicking out for threes that penetration wasn't there against georgia tech the kickouts weren't there the threes weren't there the loss was so um not to say the book is out on the Seminoles at all, but but certainly there is a way to beat them, and I think Georgia Tech and their guard play really expose some of those shortcomings. That's sort of the game you fear of with Florida State. It just pops up every now and then where just things aren't clicking offensively, and if things aren't clicking offensively, that team's probably not going to win that particular game. You look at the standings right now. Virginia 7-1, Virginia Tech 7-2, Florida State 6-2, UNC 6-3, Louisville Duke five and three, Georgia Tech four and three, Syracuse and Pitt four and four. This could be fun coming down the stretch here. I mean, there, there's not like I, I think Virginia is still probably the favorite, but there's no just like head and shoulders top of the the league type team here. Are we gearing up for an interesting second half of the ACC season where you know maybe somebody could surprise and get up there uh, ahead of Virginia? Andy, I am so pumped for the second half of the season because when you look at that that leaderboard and sort of where the standings are right now, I count maybe four or five teams that could end up winning the ACC. You know, we talk about Virginia as the favorites, but is anyone going to count out Virginia Tech now after the way they played? No. Is anyone going to count out Florida State? No. I mean, I think you still have to consider North Carolina and Duke. You're going to count one of those two Hall of Fame coaches out? I'm, I've am i learned my lesson from Clemson that I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, to put any sort of uh, juju on those guys. So, yeah, th- this is what ACC basketball is about. You know, we've got one month till March, and whatever we all end up looking like come ACC tournament time— um, this is a conference where there isn't an elite team. There's a bunch of good tournament contenders. Are any of these teams like locks to make the final four? No, but I think in this next month, whichever team is able to build the most momentum, these these are the teams that we're going to see go on and, and get to the Sweet 16, get to the Elite Eight, sort of represent the conference at large. And um, the fun part is we have absolutely no idea of what team it's going to be right now. Well, as fun as that might be, I'll, I'll take it to a downer for our next topic. Are we going to have an ACC tournament? Are we going to have something resembling a regular ACC tournament? This was a topic last week on the ACC conference call. They do those every Monday, so that comes after we record the show. But, you know, Jeff Capel last week says, if you're a team that knows you're in the NCAA tournament, do you take the risk of going or do you say we're not going to play? Uh, Chris Mack says he believes there will be opt-outs in the conference tournaments. He said he would consider it for Louisville if he, they are NCAA locks at that point. Uh, this is all due to the COVID-19 worries that, you know, this thing will still not be under control by then. Why would you go down there and risk traveling and playing extra games like that? I think some people are concerned. Why would you go down there and play if you're guaranteed one game? I mean, do they have to do something with this tournament uh, to entice these teams to go down there and play. Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of things that are currently on the table as far as alterations that could be made to the ACC men's basketball tournament. So is it a situation where instead of having every team play one game, you know, and I think Mike Bray has a good point. If if you're Notre Dame, what is the point in going down for one game, maybe you lose, turning right back around and going home. Or, or maybe you go down and there's a COVID issue and you don't even get to play. Um, so I think that there's got to be some sort of security or safety net built in for some of these teams where you know you're going to get at least a couple of games. And also, if you're the ACC, you know, I think back to football season, we talk about some of the uh, you know decisions that came around towards the end of November, early December that I won't say enabled, but definitely assisted in getting both Clemson and Notre Dame into the college football playoff. Um, 
This is another situation where if you're the conference, if you're the league office, you want to help your teams. So you want to help a Georgia Tech or a Louisville get some of those marquee wins that maybe they don't have. Let's say that Duke puts on a strong second half run and they they win the majority of their games in February, but they're not quite firmly in the tournament bubble. If you're the league office, you want Duke to do well. You want Duke represented in March Madness. And so you should find a way to make sure that Duke gets the opportunity for quality wins. So um, certainly I think there's the possibility where you're talking about guaranteed games. I think there's the possibility where you're talking about like a loser's bracket of sorts. I think there's a chance where you're talking about around Robin style with, with you know groups and pairings of four or five teams. Um, the thing that's obviously going to complicate it is what was talked about last week. Are there going to be opt-outs? I, I like Chris Mack, believe there will be. You know, I don't really see a point for a Notre Dame team that has no shot of getting in the tournament going down and, and participating. Same for a Boston college. Um, you know, maybe that's a little bit different for someone like Steve Forbes at Wake Forest, who's close to the clo- closer by to where the tournament will be, uh, still obviously trying to get his bearings first year as a head coach. Um, but I don't think for some of these these teams, the decision is going to be that it's worth it. And so, yeah, certainly there need to be contingency plans in place. And um, behind closed doors, the conference is sort of looking at all options right now. It'd be tough in my mind to be like, oh, you're going to go down there and play in a pod or something like that and play like four games or three games guaranteed because you don't want to wear these teams out before they get to the postseason, too. I feel like that's always something you have to worry about in the ACC baseball tournament. It's like these, these teams go down there and play five games and they'll throw their entire pitching staff, and then they got to turn around and, and play in an NCAA tournament after that. I think that's the tough part is like how much would be too much and you know where would you do it? I mean, you can't get all these games in at the Greensboro Coliseum. You probably need some some uh, secondary sites to make stuff like that happen. Right, you would, and and I think that that's a really smart point you bring up because that's going to be our exacerbated by the NCAA tournament format this year. You know, everything is is more condensed in terms of when those games are getting played too. So. Um, Certainly fatigue is a factor that you can't consider. Yeah, I mean, Greensboro is a great host site, and I understand the ACC, you know, trying to sort of make it up to Greensboro after last year's tournament fell through, you know, halfway through. But I don't, I I just don't know how viable it is. I, I would be interested to know how, how much time leeway the ACC has, because I think a lot of these decisions are going to become more obvious and more apparent in say the third week of February as compared to now when we know what teams have a real chance at getting in the tournament, what teams are clearly not, and then which teams sort of fall in, in the gray area between, you know, if there are a lot of teams in that gray area, I think you're going to see a more creative push for some sort of solution. Because again, the ACC doesn't want to roll into March madness with, with three teams. That would be a really bad look, um, especially after last year and, and how many good, uh, potential teams that they had in Duke and Florida state. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a fascinating and, and just weird situation because you can't do what you normally would. I mean, I don't think that's an option. I think everyone understands that everyone, you know, put on your thinking caps. This is, this has got to be something where creative solutions prevail. Shoot, Syracuse might just opt out because Bayheim doesn't want to go to Greensboro again. <laughs> That's a distinct possibility with that. Uh, we covered Coach of the Year at the halfway point of the season earlier in the podcast. Uh, after Mike Young, who else would you have in consideration for that? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that, again, you probably give some benefit of the doubt to Leonard Hamilton. I mean, he was sort of a unanimous choice, I think, last season. But um, Florida State had so much turnover, so much veteran turnover. And for them to basically just pick up where they left off, MJ Walker to sort of um, 
naturally progress into the role that he has. I, I think that that's been a really impressive showing for him. A couple of weeks ago, I would have said Brad Brownell, but um, you know, I don't think Coach Brownell wants anything to do with me right now, so I'll abstain from that. But the other guy that I look at, and um, you know, I don't know how this will be received more broadly, is is Josh Pastner, um, ACC Coach of the Year. I don't think is an award like Mike Shishovsky has won it a shockingly low number of times. Same with Roy Williams. Um, but what Pastner has done with Georgia Tech and the fact that he's still around to, to even have uh, Alvarado and DeVoe and Wright with a shot to get into the tournament, um, I think if the Yellow Jackets do end up making it into the field, Josh Pastner has a really strong case as well. Yeah, usually that award is the who exceeded the media's expectations the most exactly, award. Exactly, exactly. I, I hate doing that, and I've kind of changed my thinking when I've done voting in the ACC for the football awards, where I've been voting Dabo, the coach of the year, the last couple of years, because I'm like, they're just the best. And people are like, oh, well, anybody could win with that talent. It's like, well, who brings the talent in? That's part of coaching. That is Dabo Sweeney uh, down there. Absent sort of a dominant team this year, in the ACC, I think I sort of go towards that who exceeded the expectations the most. Right now, it's obviously Mike Young. We'll see if that keeps up. I'm curious to see how that plays out the rest of the year. Here's a tougher question, I think. Who is your player of the year in the ACC? Because I feel like Champagny is the leading scorer and rebounder. And then you look at Pitt, they're four and four in the conference and, and kind of right in the middle of the pack. There's not like a, it's not like the player of the year this year is somebody who's leading the way for the obvious best team in the conference. Right. So that's the dilemma. I mean, how much do you factor winning into the equation? Not, not to say that Justin Champagne doesn't impact winning because um, you guys should take away my microphone if I said anything so ridiculous. But, but again, you know, this is a Pitt team that is not consistent. You know, Pitt lost to Wake Forest. So I, I think you do have to sort of factor that into the conversation. I would still give Champagne the nod, though, because he has just been such a dominant, you know, single-man force. And I think the way that I try and do these things when I'm counting awards is as I look at what would a guy's team look like without him or even with an average-level player filling his role. And in the case of Justin Champagne, if there's an average player filling his spot and not doing the sort of things that he's doing, you know, putting up 30 and 15 feels like every other night. Um, Pitt is a team that we're talking about, I think in the same breadth as like a Notre Dame and a, in a Boston college and a wake forest. So I still give the nod to him, but if you wanted to make an argument for a couple of other guys, you know, I think there's, there's probably an argument to be made for Carly Jones. Um, you know, if Duke starts picking it up, you could probably make an argument for Matthew hurt. Um, Jose Alvarado, Jay Huff, Sam Hauser. Um, there's a ton of guys in that mix, but I think Champagny's individual play right now and how much he changes Pitt's overall look right now for for me is enough to give him the nod. So Champagny's an obvious first-team guy uh, on your list. That Who are the other four that you're putting on a first-team at this point? The other, the other, There's a couple that I feel really good about. Um, Champagny's one. The other one is Carly Jones. I think, you know... He, he, what, where Louisville goes, he goes. Where he goes, Louisville goes. You know, they are one and the same right now. When Louis, when he struggles, as, as Louisville did more broadly against Clemson, uh, the Cardinals lose. So, so Carly Jones has to be almost superhuman every single night for, I think, Louisville to really have a, a fighting chance. Um, so I think, You've got Carly filling one of the backcourt spots. You've got Champagny. Right now, I, I would give one of those spots to Jose Alvarado. Um, against different various opponents, he has been just outstanding, like so terrific. Um, you know, I, I had a cool stat from the Georgia Tech and Florida State game. He and Moses Wright were the first pair of ACC teammates 
with 20 points and five steals apiece in the last 25 seasons. I mean, that's that's wow. pretty astounding. So um, I think right now, you know, <laughs> if, if, I, if you told me before the year that my midway ACC starting, you know, all ACC backcourt would be Carly Jones and Jose Alvarado, I'd have... Um, I'd have poured you another drink. Uh, <laughs> but those two right now, then I look at Champagny. I think it's impossible to leave Matthew Hurt off with the way that he's been scoring the ball. Um, he's clearly Duke's alpha right now. He's their number one offensive option. The fifth, the fifth spot is hard. The fifth spot is much more difficult for me because here I think you could go to a number of guys. You, do you go with Hauser? Do you go with Jay Huff? Um, you know, do you go with an MJ Walker? I think for right now, I probably go with Hauser just because he, in my opinion, is the best player on still the best team in the in the ACC. But if you wanted to put Huff in there, if you wanted to put Keve Aluma in there, if you want if you wanted to put Armando Baycott in there for UNC, I think you'd have a convincing argument. So there's a lot of of really good people, I think, in that sort of five to eight slot um, that'll obviously fill themselves out in the second and third teams. But right now, the only two I feel super comfortable with are Carly Jones and and um, Justin Champagny. It's amazing how spread out it seems like the talent is in the ACC this year. Normally, you're like, well, there's two Duke guys, two UNC guys, and then fill in like another spot. And this one, you're like, there's one player for each team that you sort of put forward as that representative of that team, and you can probably go about eight or nine deep in the ACC. Uh, it should be interesting how this thing plays out down the stretch. Also interesting, we have talked about basketball this entire podcast the football schedule came out this week, and I don't want to harp too long on the football schedule, but we are originally a football podcast, so we like to address this stuff. Uh, I always find it interesting when the schedule comes out. It's this big deal. It's like the schedule release. It's like we already knew all the teams that they were playing. They just put them in order. Uh, one thing that was interesting about this order, though, is uh, two programs you and I are familiar with, UNC playing at Virginia Tech in the season opener. It's going to be a Thursday or Friday night game in that first week of September. Uh, you know, they always do week zero games, so there's going to be probably a game before that at some point. But this is going to be one of the first big ones on the schedule next year. That could be a really fun game, I think. I mean, considering the last time they played in Lane Stadium, they went to six overtimes. Uh, that could be an incredibly fun game, how this thing opens the season. Sam Sam Howell uh, and Virginia Tech have a history now. So, I mean, both. I, I mean, the game this year that you and I saw was a pretty interesting one. I mean, I know it got a little bit out of hand at the end, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that contest as well. So, yeah, I think this game has a, has a chance to really be a proving ground for both teams. You know, if you're UNC, you're trying to show that all of the offensive production you lost, all the skill position players that you can just sort of um, in lockstep fill those roles and, and keep performing at the offensive rate that you were. And if you're Virginia Tech, you're trying to make a statement. It's crazy to think that, you know, I won't say the Coastal is going to be decided week one, but you're you're talking about a, a game that's going to have ramifications three, four months down the road. So um, I'm fascinated by it. I know that, that your biggest stipulation is uh, not even necessarily related to the football aspect of it, but um, as far as on the field, it's going to be an incredible game. Yeah, it's interesting. I look at UNC losing all those skill guys to the NFL. How is that new group going to gel? I think they'll be okay with Sam Howell there, but I, I also don't think they'll be like, you know, middle end of the season where everything is just clicking with that group. They've got some extremely talented guys. Josh Downs really stepped up uh, in the bowl game, huge game against Texas A&M. And for Virginia Tech, I mean, everything this year will be looked at as a referendum on Justin Fuente. <laughs> and of course, right out of the gate, you can either be, hey, maybe he's coming back or no, he's absolutely fired right away. Because if they lose that game, 
like you mentioned, it's an uphill battle in the Coastal right away. And that first month for them, they play at West Virginia and host Notre Dame as well. Uh, we could know very well, uh, you know, sort of the, the future outlook there for the Hokies, how things are going to go. But, uh, you know, they are 4-1 and one against UNC in Fuente's time here, the one loss being last year. Uh, they did win that game a couple years ago, the six-overtime thriller in Lane Stadium. That uh, th- That's the big reason why I just so desperately want there to be fans. Like, let's get cracking on this vaccination for many reasons, many other reasons than this. But as a secondary or tertiary reason around this thing, I want them to do this so they can have a full house at Lane Stadium and just have that atmosphere again because that was so fun a couple years ago to have that game in front of that crowd and it was just electric. The, the, I, I, you know, you go down on the field at the end of the game. We couldn't do that this past year, but you do that as writers uh, in normal times. So I was down there for the entire six overtime session and the last five minutes of the game, which included uh, like a flea flicker touchdown pass for UNC and a 60 yard touchdown run for Virginia tech from Quincy Patterson. So uh, being down on the field, like you could feel that whole thing. And man, I, I just want to have fans back in the stadium. Cause I could, that'd be one of the first major events, you know, college football wise that would have that capacity crowd. Hopefully uh, if, if we get enough people vaccinated, as, as my grandparents would say, Andy, from your lips to God's ears. So uh, let's, let's get the vaccinations rolling. Let's, let's get the good people back in their seats. Um, that's going to be a heck of a game. And um, it's, it is so interesting. I think from afar to think that, you know, Virginia tech, if that game goes South could be sitting at 0 and three and, and, you know, Justin Fuente's fate is at that point basically sealed, right? Yeah, well, they have a couple other games in between Middle Tennessee and, and Richmond, which okay. better not lose those. So, <laughs> but, you know, three losses. If they lose those three games, that could be very rough for them. That is months away. Uh, the basketball season is here right now. That's going to wrap it up for another show, though. Uh, really enjoyed this one. It'll be interesting next week. We'll recap uh, the week, talk about Duke UNC. Obviously, we'll be fresh off of that game uh, next Monday. Everybody go on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us there. Uh, we enjoy that so much. We thank you for listening. We'd like you to rate and review us so other people can come to the podcast and listen as well. Subscribe to The Athletic. You can listen to this podcast ad-free. You can read all of our wonderful writing. I mean, Brendan is a phenomenal basketball writer. So go read all of his stuff on Duke, UNC, other sports as well. Go to theathletic.com slash pod. You'll find our best deal there. Follow me on Twitter at AndyBitterVT. Follow Brendan at BrendanR marks and we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah.